Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck sticks? What the fuck wads? What's happening? What the fuckadelics? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Thanks for uh, coming by. Thanks for uh, sticking me in your head. Thank you for taking me in wherever you may be, in a cave, under the ground. Todd Rundgren is on the show today. Todd Rundgren, who... I've known all my life just by virtue of seeing his albums my entire life. I know his face. I, I know I could identify him all my life, I think. Since I, I've been cognizant of looking at records, I've known Todd Rundgren's face. And I don't know that I really connected him with his music until you know not long ago. Because how did I get to it? Rundgren is one of these guys that, look, I know he's a genius. I know he's made a million fucking records. They just released a box set last month of all the Bearsville records. He's also on tour. Uh, he's taking a tour, making a tour, doing a tour all over the country in Canada. You can go to Todd-Rungren.com to find out where he's playing. But it was one of those situations where, and, it, and this has happened a lot on the show. Most people, whether you, you may know a couple of uh, Todd's hits, but a, a lot of you are sort of hung up. Maybe not you. But I'm sure you've heard that Liv Tyler grew up with him as a father, basically, because um, Todd was with uh, Liv's mother, B.B. Buell, I believe is her name. Steve Tyler kind of checked out on that front, I guess. I don't even know the story, but I will tell you right now, I wasn't going to talk to Todd Rundgren about that. You can go find that kind of cultural detritus dialogue elsewhere i wanted to talk about the genius i wanted to learn because i get very intimidated i don't know if some of you know this but uh, you know i don't have the power to book anybody i want i like when you assume i do but i don't some people aren't available sometimes we've got to find a time window some people don't want to and then some people are offered some people are uh, are presented that want to do the show and todd rundgren was one of those people and we had him booked and I rescheduled it or kind of blew it off or, or pushed it up a bit because I felt insecure about my knowledge of Todd Rundgren. When you're looking at somebody that's got a career that spans, you know, almost 50 years with his own music and with production and with, and knowing that there are 
full-on Todd Rundgren nerds out there. I that's what always intimidates me when I I, I have the opportunity to interview somebody with a massive career is that uh, I, I just assume, you know, people are going to be out there going like, no, oh, how could you not talk about that time he broke his toe in Woodstock because he was running from uh, an angry guitar player? You know, I, you know, I made that up. Why didn't you talk about the two notes that he took out of the thing? Like, I have a series of people I make up in my head, and there's always the the one voice... One of the guys I make up in my head in relation to anybody I talk to is the guy that knows everything about him, even the most esoteric, nuanced stuff, and that uh, they're just waiting to call me out. Didn't do a good job. Didn't bring up uh, the soundtrack for Pee-wee's Playhouse. I didn't know that. Yeah, you should have done some research. I don't know. Maybe I just want to talk to the guy and learn about him. Go experience it myself. So that's what I do. When I have somebody that has a career spanning the amount of time that Todd has, is that that means I have to enter the world, you know, aggressively and and fill my head up and try to understand. Because I'm, I'm, I wasn't a lifelong fan. I had sort of a hard time with his music because it, it didn't necessarily resonate with me. But, you know, you listen to some of the records, and you're like, well, this guy's definitely touched. You know, he's definitely a genius. But uh, he might not be my genius, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested. So why don't I gather what I know, what I can know from listening to the records and some tidbits here and there. And I relied on a friend of the show, Mr. Paul Myers, who wrote a, a pretty thorough book about uh, Todd in the studio. It's called uh, A Wizard, A True Star, Todd Rundgren in the Studio. It is the book on Todd Rundgren's uh, studio work. So I uh, emailed Paul and I'm like, Dude, where do I start, man? So he got me on it. And the first time that I became sort of fascinated with Todd and I picked up one of his records that he used record store was because the sales brothers, Hunt and Tony, Hunt, who I've uh, interviewed, who were both uh, the offspring of Soupy Sales, but Hunt is one of the great drummers, one of the great rock drummers, as is his brother, one of the great rock bassists, played a bit with um, Todd and with uh, Iggy Pop on Lust for Life, and with Bowie uh, in the Tin Machine, and that and and when I talked to Hunt, he said that he was playing with Todd when he was eighteen years old, seventeen years old. So I became sort of fascinated with Todd. Then I listened to those records and I did what I could, but but I wanted to I wanted to talk to him, and I wanted to learn from him, and just engage. And that it, it's always amazing to me that. When I'm insecure about an interview, and that usually happens when they have amazingly long careers and, and are incredibly prolific or have created a lot of great stuff, that I just know that I'm I'm not I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to miss something, so I overcompensate and I talk for a really long time, <laughs> and then I really learn some stuff. So that's uh that's coming up here. You're going to hear me talk to uh, the wizard himself, Todd Rundgren, who uh, great stories and a lot of stuff that you know in, in terms of the history of music and the music that i that i i do listen to and enjoy that i didn't know and and was uh it was great and and he's um he's got opinions man the buzz so let me just loop you in been having some trouble with the buzz my 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 phono fuck 
when I talk about this, it's so stupid. But it's you know it's it's I get obsessed with this stuff because I I don't want to deal with my you know pending mortality and uh, the terror of meaninglessness. So I'm locked into the buzz situation. I talked about building a Faraday box, which is an insulated cage, usually with grounded copper or something. There's a lot of different variations on it that you pr- you put over the piece of equipment or over all your equipment, so it'll fight off these these intrusive electromagnetic waves from cell towers well here's here's the here's the crux here's the rub here's what i found out i did all the troubleshooting i could and i thought that now i'd I'd, I'd limited it to the wires because i brought my receiver down the hall to brian's office and we plugged it in there got no buzz then i brought his amplifier phono amplifier down to my office and the buzz was there so that means the buzz was on four different pieces of equipment that i rotated out and in in my office so I figure, got to be the plugs, got to be the electrical system. Now there's this mysterious door down the hallway that's like keep out, don't open. It's got a card lock on it. And all I know is that there's AT&T equipment in there, but I didn't know what that meant. You know, I thought there was, I'd heard there was an AT&T antenna on top of the building, but I thought that was for the building Wi-Fi. I wasn't thinking. So what happens, what I learn is that it's not a Wi-Fi antenna. AT&T actually rents space in that building both in that hallway and on the roof for a fucking cell tower. There's a fucking cell tower on the roof of my building. And what I learned from the electrician who I had come over, all of the technological and mechanical infrastructure of the cell tower is situated behind a fake brick wall directly on top of my office. So I am being bathed with waves all the time and no piece of equipment can stand up to the pummeling of these waves. No phono preamp is insulated enough to not share with me and whoever's listening the horrible frequency of people making calls everywhere in this area. So what do I do? I don't fucking know. I talked to my landlord. She don't want the thing there anymore. I got to talk to AT&T. Some guy said, you know, just to file a complaint with the FCC, man, they're not allowed to interfere with your shit. And then then the other side of it is I got people that say, uh, well, uh, maybe you should just listen to, uh, you know, your um, your iPod or your phone and just plug it in and get a jam box or something. It's like, no, no, I don't want to lay down because corporate intrusion is causing me a slight inconvenience that I find annoying. It's my right to have freedom to listen to my records and not just bow down to the automobile-sized infrastructure of fucking Wi-Fi network on top, directly on top. And what's it doing to my brain? I don't know, probably nothing, maybe. I don't know. I don't know, I'll let you know. I thought it was really peaceful in there. Maybe that's got something to do with it. Maybe maybe I shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth. Is that how that saying goes? Anyway, all I can foresee is that it may be a Davy and Goliath story. David and Goliath, not the claymation. And I, uh, of course, would play the part of uh, David, uh, who, uh, you know, only armed with a, a certain amount of disappointment and anger, is going to fight the waves that run the world. What else do I got to tell you, real quick? Uh, oh, Daniel Klaus, who I'm a huge fan of, you may know him from 
the eight ball comic books or uh, Ghost World, the com- graphic novel, or uh, you know several other uh, great pieces of comic art has released a book called Patience. This is new graphic novel, which I enjoyed a great deal, and we're going to have him on the show uh, soon. We're going to put it up soon, but I just wanted to tell you that Patience, the new graphic novel by Daniel Klaus, is out, and it's great. Okay? So now watch me learn. Don't watch me. Listen to me learn from uh, a true wizard, Todd Run. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Todd Rundgren's here. You're here at the garage. Where were you today? Uh, well, I got in very early this morning. From? Kauai, where I live. You live in Kauai the whole time? <laughs> the time I can live there, yeah. <laughs> we've, I, we've been having this discussion all day, how much time I've been spending on the road. With your and, manager, you've been having that discussion? Uh, yeah. And, and does that discussion, is that like... How much fucking more dates can I do, or is it like I I don't I got to keep doing dates? No, it's how much less <laughs> dates can I do, <laughs> more or less. I mean, when you live in Kauai, you want to spend at least some time at home. No, absolutely. I I've gone there. It's the only place in Hawaii I've been. I've been there like two or three times. Wow, because you know I meet people all the time. And they say, "Oh, I've been to Oahu. Oh, I've been to Maui." Nope. Never been. O- only Kauai? Only Kauai. For a honeymoon or something like that? I've or? taken uh, several different, uh, three different women there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, for a deflowering. Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't know what it is. I just don't know where to go. I'm a sort of an anxious guy, and I think I went there with the first wife, uh, not for a honeymoon, but for a vacation, and we, I was so taken with it. I'm like, this is going to be the go-to place. I, I thought it might be with her for the rest of time. It didn't pan out that way. <laughs> what? Uh, where did you stay the first time? The first time was uh, this, uh, the the South uh, on Poipu. That was the mistake. Yeah, that's a mistake. Right. So the that's se- like, uh, you know, Hotel Row. Exactly. Or- horrible. But, you yeah. know, it was okay. We got a, a condo. And then the second time, I'm like, North Side, North Shore. So I went up up there. Now, where what was the date of your first visit? To oh, boy. 96, 7, maybe? Oh, gosh. So you never had the opportunity to stay at the Cocoa Palms. No, no, no. Wait, how long have you been there? Uh, well, I've been going to the island since seventy, the mid seventies. That, well, is that the one that there's still burned remains of uh, up towards the North Shore? There's like a hotel there that I've seen like two or three times where it's just it looks like. It, well, it's on the way to the North Shore. That's the Cocoa Palms on the left. Yeah, that was where Blue Hawaii was filmed. No shit, with Elvis. 
So is that the one that's got like all a, like a haunted house kind of like? Well, no, no, no. It's a, it's full of black moss, and you'll die if you go. But it's, it's like a, nothing. Not it's worse than haunted. It's like a rotten shell, right? But it's there. Yeah, they keep saying they're going to rebuild it. There's another consortium says they're going to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. It'll never be what it used to be because it had just the perfect amount of tack. Yeah. To it, but it was like everything you thought about because you saw Blue Hawaii. Yeah. And it was everything you thought about. Yeah. When you went to the islands, right? You know, right. You're eating lunch in the lanai while birds come you know and eat out of your hands <laughs> yeah. and it's right next to like a yeah. canal full of koi swimming yeah. around and every evening they have a you know a torch lighting ceremony sure. a pig and, is roasted oh yeah and the guys in the pareos are rowing their little canoes <laughs> down the canals and everything and it's just like and if you ever saw blue hawaii all yeah. of that is kind of reenacted in there right right but and gone uh, it's gone. That was the first place that I stayed, the only place I ever stayed until 1993, Hurricane Aniki came through, and the eye of the hurricane, 200-mile-an-hour winds, went right over the island. Leveled it. It totally leveled it. So you were there maybe three years, three or four years after that wow. happened. You know, if the place took a real haircut. Well, I mean, so, but you've been going there since the 70s? Yeah. What the hell was down there in the 70s? Nothing? I was getting away from an evil girlfriend. Oh, yeah? What, you know, uh, see, you took your <laughs> girls there. You ran away. I went there to just get a little respite. <laughs> as far away as I've, you know, I was living in New York at the time. In so, the city. Yeah. So what are we talking, 71, 72? Eh, about then, 73, 74. Somebody suggested, you know, why don't, you know. Go. Get out. Go. She's going to kill you, Go man. Go for a while. Well, no, that, all that came much later, and I almost killed her. So, <laughs> oh, where's that song? Some things are not meant for publication. <laughs> and really, yet to yeah. Well, you know, there's always time. Yeah. You know that. You know that the the deep dark record that's uh, when you can't quite sing anymore. That's when you do that one. Where's just, yeah? When I start to sound like hey, where's uh, just wisdom coming out? Yeah, Johnny Cash. <laughs> yeah, or, right, uh, right. You, know, you call Rick Rubin up and argue with him about it. <laughs> <laughs> here's the deal with uh, with me and you is that yeah uh, why am i here <laughs> you wanted to come i did want to come but i was surprised to be invited to come well the weird thing is is like i've spent my whole life you know saying like you know i got to get into todd runger and how do i start <laughs> Where, <laughs> there seems like a lot here yeah how do i start you know and then like a few years ago i i, I started and i obviously it's, it's it's very difficult because you continue to put out stuff but that happens. And then in a panic, when I knew you were coming, uh, I, I DM'd Paul Myers. And I'm like, dude, what, what, which ones? What am I? What, <laughs> you know, well, he's Paul. pretty authoritative. But he's it, the yeah. guy, right? Well, uh, he wrote the biography. The, well, the he one. wrote the biography. And he wrote the story of my productions. Yeah. Essentially, it was, you know, each chapter was about a particular record right. that got made. And he yeah. interviewed me and he interviewed the musicians who were involved in the record and anybody else so it's real recordy stuff so yeah it's pretty much it's not gossipy right it's uh i mean if there were any significant you know things going on those were certainly related but otherwise it was mostly an insight into the process right well the thing that blew me away is that like because i i've gotten into vinyl again right so i've got i've got the the ballad of todd runger and i've got that one on wow nobody has that really that was the that was kind of the lost album. It was my second album. Right, right, yeah. First album came out on what was originally Ampex Records. Yeah. 
What happened? Wow! What is what? Well, happened Albert there? Grossman, you know, who was like the Uber manager. Of let's talk. The, to, let's talk about 60s. that. Let's go. Let's go into in sequence then. If we're going to go, like, because like, well, <laughs> well then what, we're going there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so what happened was, uh, you know, I started getting into psych rock. So then somebody hips me to Naz, and then I'm listening to Naz, and I'm like, holy shit, that's Todd Rundgren. He's in Naz. So how old were you when Naz was uh, in existence? Uh, I was 18 when we put the band together. And how and where were you from? Where where did that happen? Philadelphia. So you're Phil, you're a Philly guy, grew up in Philly. I did not grow up in Philly. I grew up in Westbrook Park, which was in Upper Darby, the westerly suburb of Philadelphia. And and I went to Upper Darby High School. Yeah. Uh, other notable graduates were Jim Croce and Tina Fey. Did you know Jim Croce? and Sherry Otari? He graduated before I. Yeah, yeah. Was there. And of course, Tina Fey yeah. is much younger than me. Yeah, so yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, but when you were so that we're talking uh, mid sixties, you're in high school. Yeah, I graduated in sixty six. Graduated air quotes in sixty six. So what's going on musically in Philly? That was like an R and B town, right? Well, we were sort of an R and B town because we, you know, we're right on the Mason Dixon line, right. And so, like anything above the Mason-Dixon line, that's the North. That's yeah, the Yankees. Sure. And as you move below that, it gets more questionable until you get into the Deep South. Right. And in the Deep South, records by black people were called race records. Yeah. And they only got played on really low wattage stations, uh-huh. you know, and in rural areas. But in Philadelphia, we're right on that sort of cusp. And we had a DJ, and his name was Jerry Blavitt. Yeah. And he played nothing but R&B records. Yeah. You know, everybody else is playing white music, you know. And, and Jerry Blavitt, the Jewish guy. Nah, Jerry playing, Blavitt, yeah. the geeter with the heater. And yeah, he's, he's playing the black records. <laughs> he plays all the, He plays all the black records. He's still alive, and he's still DJing. Have you have you, uh, have you met with him and thanked him? Never met him and never got to thank him. So, but he's but still, there's someday. time. There's yeah. time. There's time. So is that what you were taking in? Was that your thing? Well, when we were growing up, yeah, yeah that was, you know... Uh, a thing that a lot of other areas didn't get. They didn't get that sort of R&B music. So that influence, you know, that's in me. It's in Daryl Hall. It's in, you know, a bunch of people who come out of Philadelphia. And what, um, when did you start, like, what kind of childhood were you in? What did your dad do? My dad was an engineer. He worked for DuPont. Oh, really? And uh, in Philadelphia. Yeah. At a big plant there. Yeah. Um, Quiet guy? Uh, um, yeah, stern guy. Yeah. Well, he's, he didn't really have a father figure. Uh-huh. So his father figure was Jackie Gleason on the Honeymooners, a childless couple, you know? <laughs> right, so right, right. he never really kind of figured out how to deal with the kids. How many yeah. were there? Four. Ultimately. Oh my God. Yeah. He knew how to make them, yeah. you know, but <laughs> managing them was a different story. Are you the oldest? I'm the oldest. Yeah. Oh my God. Everybody's still okay? Uh, they're still there. <laughs> we were never okay. Come on. <laughs> but oh, they're still in, outside of Philly and stuff. Uh, still in yeah, in the Philadelphia area. But when did you start? Like, here's here's the thing I have when I when I listen to yeah, as much of the catalog as I can fit in my head is that it it becomes sort of difficult to define you know what you do because you're singular and I and I, I guess that's a good problem to have. But like, I don't know. Like, I don't I don't even know what to call it. I know that you've spawned a lot of, uh, like when you say uh, Hall and Oates or, or uh, Daryl Hall. Yeah. It feels to me that, like, without you, there'd be no him. Nah. Okay. I worked on, their, on Hall and Oates' third album. Okay. 
And up until their third album, and through the third album, yeah, they're a pretty eclectic band. They, yeah, you know, you think of them now as you know those kind of white blue-eyed soul, yeah, hit after hit after hit. Right but before that, they were much more sort of. They were still trying to figure out, you know, all what they wanted to do out of all the possibilities. Uh-huh. So their first album, which was called Whole Oats, almost had a like a, an acoustic sound to it. Uh-huh. Second it, one called Abandoned Luncheonette yeah. had this whole variety of songs. And if you listen to the title song, you wouldn't you wouldn't even know who was right. singing it. You know? Right. It was so But out, no real identity as a as a Well, no, it's just so different from right. what people now associate with right. Ronos. And, then, and they were still kind of in that mode when we did War Babies. But at that point, you know, Daryl was starting to think a little more conceptually. You know, he wanted to capture an era. He also wanted to push the envelope, mm-hmm. you know, to experiment a little bit more. David Bowie was a big influence, you know, because he was doing all of this kind of... It's hard to explain that, huh? Yeah, it's hard to explain what, what it was. What period is that? What year are we talking? Well, we're thinking, you know, it's a little after Ziggy Stardust. Oh, okay. You know, it's past the science fiction thing. You know, right. Did but... he have an influence on you as well? I, I always thought he was an interesting artist. Uh-huh. But I never, except for particular things that he did, right? I never got into his process, which was essentially just trying to stay on the tip of whatever's hip. Right, or, or a little ahead of it if possible. A little ahead of it as possible, but never really, you never write songs about yourself. Right. You write songs about things that sometimes don't even make any sense. It's sure. Just, you know, they, yeah. they use this process, him and Eno use this process sometimes where they just pull uh, clippings of books and magazines out of a hat, you know, uh-huh. and that would be the next line in the lyric. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because lyrics are so hard to write. But also if you're the kind of artist who is constantly building artifice, in other words, you yourself are the art piece. Right. In a way, yeah. You don't write songs about your real self, right? You're Which, creating a, you know, a, a, an image for people, and you write songs about that image. Well, you, on, uh, on the other hand, I, I imagine, but I've, I've gotten this wrong with songwriters before. But you, I, I when I listen to your music, especially the earlier stuff, it, it seems very heavy-hearted and uh, and 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 a little painful. Are you writing about yourself throughout? Like, well, in those you know early years, you yeah. know, my first three albums, I was learning how to be a songwriter, right? And I was learning how to sing. I already knew kind of how to be a producer. Well, how? Okay, well, let's get back to that. When did you start playing all these instruments? Well, we started playing other instruments like in the NAS. But what was your first as a kid? What did you start on? I started on well, if you want to go way back, to why the not? Beginning. Well, they you know. In those days, they offered music lessons in school. Right. You know, it wasn't like they had a, you know, a great music department, but people would go around from school to school. Yeah. And they had a, you could rent an instrument, and someone would come and give you some lessons on that instrument. Yeah. Ideally, to teach you how to read music as well. Right. And the first instrument that I actually th- seriously tried to play was the flute. <laughs> really? Yeah. Your choice? I just liked the sound of it. Uh-huh. You know, my. Dad didn't like a lot of pop music in the house, so we heard a whole lot of symphonic music all the time. Yeah. So. Did you like it? I loved it. Yeah. Because you, know? you can hear that in all the records. Yeah. A lot I of love, layers. I love all that stuff. Um, I love 
you know, I love uh, a band like Melt Banana. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> who's that? <laughs> they good? Oh, it's a it's a Japanese trio that if you, find yourself right, some Melt I'm Banana. Write I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write it down. I'll make note. They got like a girl singer, mm-hmm. a guy guitar player, yeah, with a bunch of a whole bunch of pedals, yeah. And a drummer. Right. And they just torture everything out of their instruments that they can during these performances. <laughs> you know, you can't believe how much they are bad, what this girl's doing to her voice <laughs> and how crazy the drummer is. He's like Keith Moon times two. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and the guitar player is doing everything possible, you know, with pedals and yeah, yeah. switches and stuff like that and creating these loops on the fly. And it's just, it's amazing and it makes no sense. And that's good. Yeah. It's, it's not pop music. <laughs> but it's no, good. but it's like, you know, part of music has always been, we've gone through this entire illusory period since Edison discovered how to record sound. Yeah. Illusory in, in what sense? Well, before that, you couldn't hear music unless somebody played it for you. <laughs> you <laughs> right, right, know, right. Yeah. You know. Now we're the able, guy coming over? Yeah. Now yeah. we got able to capture the performance, yeah. the sound of the performance. Right. You know, and we've really perfected that over a hundred years or so, you know, a hundred or more years. Too perfect sometimes. Whatever, but people have lost the idea of the difference between like the performance, which is always there. Imagine all the technology disappears, you know, tomorrow. What are musicians going to go back to doing? They're going to learn to get better at playing, (laughs) you know, and stuff like that. So that's, that's the under layer that was always there, this whole thing about you know the recorded artifact right has not really come into full perspective yet you huh. know right and, i mean and, that and, and, just because this you know there is a performance and right. sometimes it isn't even a performance right it, it's a construction of sound right which you've done a lot of which i do you yeah know? <laughs> but I, you love to perform live clearly yes and i also enjoy performing live you know and i realize that that's if you Stop doing that. You take most of the joy out of making the music. Uh huh. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and it doesn't mean you can't perform in the studio, but that's the hardest part of all because you don't have an audience there. Right. And when you're producing records for other people, it's the hardest thing to get in their head. You know. Right. Don't look at that as a microphone. Right. What do you look at it as? It's supposed to be the ear of the listener. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. So you start on flute. Then play that for a while. Yeah, my sister decided she would take clarinet lessons, but she sucked, and I got better at it than she did. And I learned how to play like two strangers on the shore on the clarinet, and I chuffed my dad no ends. You know, that's when they started to realize that maybe I had some musical talent. Uh So they did buy me the guitar lessons that I really wanted uh-huh when the ventures came out with walk don't run right of course yeah then i said oh guitar that's yeah that's what i want to do now so then you get to guitar and you're jamming and it's the 60s and it's time yeah eventually i get uh you know a real guitar actually i had you know crappy guitars until but i did have a band played yeah. a little bit while i was still in high school actually made some covers originals pocket, pocket change no all covers yeah you know all covers but that was when we also started to incorporate a lot of blues into what we were doing did you like playing blues uh i did i like listening to it and playing it you know and, who were your blues guys well in those days of course there were the um the old masters sonny boy williams yep. and of course yeah and muddy yeah wolf uh Oh, 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 Junior Wells. Yeah. And... Um, Buddy Guy. 
and Buddy Guy, world's yeah. longest guitar chord. Yeah. But, so you're uh, listening to that. The Butterfield Band. Yeah. Oh, they were around already? But that was, yeah, the Butterfield Band. They came, I think their album came out in 65 or something uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. You know? And then we said, oh, yeah, white guys yeah. playing the blues. All right. Yeah. Just before the English guys. Yeah. No, the English guys had already done that. Oh, they had? No. See, the whole thing was, in England, they had this merchant seaman tradition, uh-huh. you know, and in a lot of towns, especially places like Liverpool and stuff like that. Merchant seamen would just go back and forth to Mobile. Right. You know, to these port cities yeah. in the south. Yeah. Go out and buy, like, singles in the little record shops and yeah. stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, And bring back all this blues music to England. None of it was getting played in America. Yeah, I know. I talked to Mayall about that. You'd have yeah. to wait for it. Like, yeah. you know, you'd have to wait till the one guy who got those records got those exactly. records. Exactly. You know, yeah. some merchant seaman came yeah. and loads of, all the kids home will love this, you know, right. buy a bunch of singles. It's get, wild, man. Come back to Liverpool, you know, and then suddenly all those kids are playing this music and we don't find out about it till the Yardbirds play I'm a Man. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's right down, it's right a couple states down from you. Exactly. Just you below know? the Mason-Dixon line. You could have driven there, you know? <laughs> it's so weird to think about that, that it's sort of like the spice trade that, you know, like, you know, the world didn't, Certain places didn't have cinnamon until somebody brought it over on a boat. But you don't think about the blues being like that. But that's what it was like. Well, yeah, well, that's music. the interesting part about yeah. it is it was so close and yet had to go so far, you know, to get back. So how did you, how many records did you do at the NAS? Uh, we did, uh, in actuality, two. We did a debut album and then yeah. we did what was intended to be a double album, but the label was not happy with the double album concept. So... One album came out, and then after that, a sort of a leftovers album came out. And you were writing all the songs, pretty much, yeah. And that was part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I uh, I suddenly got smitten by Laura Nero. Yeah, Eli and the Thirteenth Confession came out, and it totally like, yeah, rocked my world. And I changed your whole ri- way of thinking, didn't it? Yeah, about music, and you know. And, up up until that, you're writing for the group you're in. This was like, holy crap. What about it? This girl's like 19 years old. Yeah. You know, and she is writing and singing like... Yeah. You know, like she was 50. You yeah. Know? And uh, yeah, she was like, you know, a star overnight. Uh-huh. Right? But she didn't know how to manage her career very well. Right. But kind of what happened while I was still in the NAS, I arranged for... Got my manager to arrange to have, for me to meet her. It wasn't Albert Grossman yet, was it? Uh, no, it wasn't. It right. was the manager of the NAS. Okay. Still the NAS. And How's that guy doing? Yeah. Gone. Gone, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, so you meet Laura Nero. So I meet Laura Nero. I go up to her apartment, which is in the Dakota. Really? Yeah. And uh, she makes tuna fish casseroles, the only thing she knows how to make. Because she's a kid. In a way. Still pretty young. Yeah. But also, that's the name of her publishing company, Tuna Fish Music. <laughs> so, <laughs> she loved it. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. Anyway, she made some tuna fish casserole. Yeah. I was just really nervous the whole time. So what were you expecting out of this encounter? Nothing. I just wanted to meet her. Yeah. You know, maybe get some, you know, reflected right. inspiration mm-hmm. or whatever, figure out how she did what she did. And whatever. did you? She called me like a week or two later to come visit her again. Yeah. So I went to visit her, and she said, um, would you like to be my band leader? And then NASA just signed the first record contract. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, geez, I'd love to be your band leader. 
but I have to do this thing with this band. But the upshot was I started writing all these Laura Nero songs. For her or for no, you? No, for making the NAS record yeah. all these Laura Nero songs. <laughs> <laughs> That just, you know, in the end, it just didn't mix well right. with our original kind the, Were the fellows No, like, I started writing f- everything on the piano at yeah. that point. Before that, I wrote most everything on the guitar. Right. And, uh, I mean, even Hello, It's Me, the first song I ever wrote was written on a guitar before I ever figured out how to play it on the piano. Yeah. So, yeah, it just didn't... Were the other guys sort of like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, what are we doing? We're, yeah, yeah kind of. Where's the rock and roll, man? Kind of, yeah. yeah. So I was thinking we could have rocked them up a little bit more, but they were not enthusiastic. Well, so. what, what, what was it? Because you have a very specific sound. There are certain progressions that you like to use. or certain chords you like to use. And, and what what was it about? The, and I imagine that all tracks back to that moment with Laura Nero, that there was a there was a tone to it. What what was it essentially that changed for you in that moment? What opened up? Well, in a broader sense, you know, yeah. it was the personal nature of the music. Right. You know, it was that, you know, she was really sort of, pouring out her soul on right. every performance and that was something that was sort of rare generally yeah in music yeah you know m- most artists i think of artists as being you know in two general c- categories yeah one is that they are revelatory you know in other words you get the idea that they're really singing they really believe what they're singing yeah you know yeah and the others are like obfuscatory uh, which what, like David Bowie, sure. you know, somebody who's like you're creating an image, you right. know, you don't want that image to crack, so right. you can't be revealing too much of something that isn't that image, right? But at some point, you you entered a, a, a phase of stagecraft that certainly was large. Well, yeah, that you could call that maybe even a third category, which is you know a i'm showing too much of myself i I better put on some eye makeup no it isn't no it isn't it's when you start thinking in in actual theatrical terms and you write for that moment oh okay you write for the stage right right you know like you're writing a musical or something like that and so you're trying to figure out what's the unifying theme here if Mm -hmm. there is one so that's that's so you, how you, that's how concept albums and the tours that follow them are built. You so know, it's like a theater piece almost. Exactly. You know, is there a unifying theme first of all? You know, that yeah. we should play off of. Does it involve costumes? Yeah. You know, does yeah. it involve special effects? Yeah. Things like that. You know, we could totally dove into that when we could afford it. So and, when, and still will. But those <laughs> those first records, did you see them as as whole pieces? All of them? No. Okay. I mean, my very first record was a total pastiche. I just was curious about how so Runt and the the one I have the uh, Runt the Ballad of Todd Rundgren mm-hmm. and I guess like the the album after that which something, was something that was a big record that was like two two record double record right? that was a double album that had like three hit singles off of it and it was like a, that was a concept record wasn't it well the only concept initially was that I was going to play all the instruments myself which yeah. I had not previously attempted to do now, but that t- would that take a, two years to make no. Then you played all of them. I played, well, except for the last side. Mm-hmm. On the last side, those are all live tracks. Like the Something Anything that everyone's familiar with, that was a live session that I called in the morning. We did three songs that day. Yeah. Um, Why, why'd you decide to do that? Did you just run out of steam? or? No, I had already gone over the single album limit. Yeah. I already had an album and a half. And right. I thought, oh, I want to do four sides yeah, yeah. of 
of just me or do I want to do something that's like, oh, the good old days. Right. Good old days being like before you ever got a record contract. Right. You got demo time in a, a label studio. In those days, there were those very few independent studios. Yeah. You wanted to demo for a label, you had to go into their studio. So you had to do this over and over and over again until you got signed. But you got like an hour, mm-hmm. maybe even less, half hour. Got an hour with an engineer, record as many songs as you can in an hour. And you do them all live. Right. There's no overdubbing. No, right. no, no, we don't overdub. You're only going to two track anyway. Yeah. So, well, know. that's like more exciting, isn't it, in a way? Well, it's, yeah, it brings a whole lot more attention to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, know? yeah. And that, in a way, makes can make a better record. And and Hello, It's Me was huge. It was a huge song. Uh, it did become huge. It was like the second version of it, though. Because right? uh-huh. the flip side of Open My Eyes, the first Nas single, was Hello, It's Me, uh-huh. done at a dirgy pace with me playing vibes instead of guitar. <laughs> wow. And that's a whole different song. A whole other thing, yeah. And did that song, did you feel that, like the Hello, It's Me that became the huge hit, was that, were you, did you feel like you defined a sound at that point? No, I was nonplussed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what were the other hits they were uh, on that I saw record? the light. I saw the, I light. Saw the yeah. light was the first hit. Right. Hello, It's Me. And uh, I think it wouldn't have made any difference was a lesser hit. Right. But it was a big record. So now you- It was a great record. As a matter of fact- it opened a whole lot of very interesting doors for me. Is that where Grossman comes in? All of my solo albums are under the Grossman regime. And he was a character, right, that guy? Oh, yeah. He looked like Ben Franklin. Right. And he managed, who did he manage? Dylan, Baez, the band? Well, he managed like every significant significant folk act at yeah. one point because he had a club in Chicago called the Gate of Horn. Yeah. He was originally a restaurateur, but he decided he would put on these folk acts, and anytime he saw somebody he liked, he signed them up to a management contract. Right. Which they never got out of. Ever. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, by the time I met him, uh, the Naz, there, were, there was a partner in the management, you yeah. know, like a junior partner, and he went on to work with Albert Grossman. Right, and after the Naz broke up, I was on the street. I was living with clothiers in the West Village, um, people that I used to buy clothes from when I was in the Naz. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, I wound up living with them. I designed lights in a club. I was doing anything, you know. And you're just, like 22, uh, less. Yeah, yeah. No, that would be about 20. Yeah, and uh, and this guy approached me. He said, you know, like I watched you do the production and the mixing on the last Naz album. You think you might have some talent here. So come to the Grossman organization and help us modernize all these folk acts. Oh, so that was your so job. So they started putting me, you know, with uh, Ian and Sylvia and James Cotton and, you know, Butterfield Band and stuff like that, you know. Helping Just in them. the booth? Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, you know, I did the Jesse Winchester album. I did Stage Fright. I did... Wow, Stage Fright. The, that's... Just in-house stuff. Did you that like wasn't... those guys, the band? What's that? Well, I was a really, you know, those guys were very, very experienced. Yeah. And I was not. Right. You know, they had already been like the Hawks for right. Ronnie Hawkins. Ronnie Hawkins, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, played probably like forever doing that. Were they know? impressive when you looked at them? Were you like, holy shit? Um, no, I was not. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, I... I I think we got along. They were sort of like, you know, they found me, you know, 
amusing in certain ways, but also I got things done. Yeah. You know, I exuded a certain confidence about what I was doing, which always sells. Yeah. And did you find, did you, did you, when you listen to that record, can you identify your sound as a producer? No. And I was, I was not a producer. There was no producer on stage fright. Yeah. They were kind of scrupulous about that. Mm-hmm. That you, you were know, just mixing. I did all the recording mm-hmm. and yeah, and mixing and enduring. And <laughs> after that, I did. You know, I was in England and I helped uh, helped to mix the Albert Hall show that they did there. Mm-hmm. So and then I had you know two on well, my first solo album. Yeah, uh, Levon and Rick Danko. Yeah, did a song. Yeah. for me. Oh, that's was it? Did you so, ask? No, him I got to? along. I got along with all those guys. They had an internal dynamic that was so tense anyway. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, there was a lot of tension about the fact that that Robbie wrote everything, right, and therefore owned the publishing to everything, right. And so they kind of felt sometimes like sidemen, mm-hmm. you know, to Robbie's thing. I never really got into the. I never thankfully had to get into the details of that but i knew that that was kind of right a, a constant source of tension so then okay. during the during the sessions there was it got very hard it was hurting hurting fel- felines yeah it was like it was trying to get everyone all at their instruments and ready and in the mood to do a take uh-huh seemed to take most of the time most of the time was not spent doing takes. Okay, yeah. It was getting everyone onto their instrument to do yeah, a take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there are a, a lot of things, you know, would impinge. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. One is that Garth was and likely still is narcoleptic. Uh huh. So he would just fall asleep at some point, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even in the middle of a song. Yeah. Uh, uh, Levon, unfortunately, was uh, involved with opiates and stuff like that. Yeah. We'd be trying to do a take. We're looking, all, we're doing, we're at the Re- Woodstock Theater. Right. You know, and we can't find Levon, you know, we're ready to do a take, can't find Levon. Finally find him under a pile of curtains somewhere fast asleep. <laughs> yeah. We do a session one day and Richard doesn't show up. Uh-huh. Where's Richard? Nobody knows where Richard is. <laughs> Richard apparently has spent the night with his in his car nose face down in a culvert okay all night long <laughs> they had issues but that's how but that, you got into that with grossman but that's so kind it, of like you know that yeah. character it characterizes them you yeah, know yeah you, you kind of channel those issues into yeah. the music ultimately and that's a job of a producer ultimately but as i say i was not the producer i did not have i know the, but you, this was i a, did not have the authority to say hey let's get to the, <laughs> but you had the authority to say come wake on, up leave on come on guys can we just uh Hey, leave well, on. I did, you... I did. I had a, apparently. I don't remember literally what I did, but yeah. I, I could be very, yeah, sarcastic and needling, yeah. and stuff like that. Right, well, I what... remember they all got angry with me because at one point I referred to Garth as an old man. Uh huh. <laughs> oh, really? Because relative to you. me, he was. Yeah. But all right. So after, like, so okay. So that's the that's how you got in with Grossman. So what happened? What were these opportunities that opened up for you after um, you did, uh, you know, the big one, something, anything? You were about to say like a lot of doors open. Well, th- this is essentially what characterized my output right. from that point on and why it is so difficult for you to absorb it. Right. Oh, good. Because You're going to answer all my questions. Yeah, now. because I was making more money as a producer than most people make as an artist. Okay. At that point. I had done Badfinger. I was doing Grand Funk Railroad. Grand Funk. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. I did Meatloaf. You know, so that out of hell, right? Yes, that's a big record. 
It was a very large record. Still yeah. a big record. <laughs> big boy, big record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, still pretty large, yeah. actually, yeah. ironically enough. But, you guys friends? Uh, we never see each other. But, I always wonder you know, about if, that. But if he, Not uh, about you and him specifically, but no, the relationship. We were, we were never close, right? thankfully. So you were hired by the label after something, anything? No. No? No. Exactly okay. wrong. Okay. <laughs> I'm just throwing by the I know, I know. <laughs> Assume nothing. No, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman... Uh, essentially came to me after they had demoed for everybody in the business. And nobody could figure out what to do with this big fat guy with the overly long songs. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the guy, and the weird creepy guy with the yeah. white hair and the white gloves playing the piano. Yeah. But um, they, uh, uh, they rented a demo studio and I came in and they performed most of what turned out to be bad out of hell live right yeah with four people right Steinman on the piano yeah uh ellen foley and rory dodd on vocals yeah and the big guy <laughs> from, <you know. laughs> so anyway i I watched them do this thing yeah and at that time i could afford really to take on anything okay as long as there was just like sort of a minimal production advance. Yeah. And uh, I thought, this is a spoof of Bruce Springsteen. Uh-huh. This is the ultimate Springsteen spoof. Springsteen uh-huh. was just starting to happen. He's on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah, yeah. And what does Springsteen do? These overwrought, overlong songs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, this is like the anti-Springsteen. You yeah. know, it's the same sort of thing, but it's all like taking it to at some other extreme. Yeah. And also, it's like you don't look at him and think, what a hunk. Yeah. Unless you think, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> what a hunk of something, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, so I thought that I got to do this. It's going to be a spoof of Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And he had a label at the time. Really, they just couldn't find the producer. Right. Who was sympathetic to what they were trying to do. And so we uh, rehearsed for two weeks. And to put a little icing on the cake, I think we had... At least two, and I'm trying to remember, we had three members of the East Street Band yeah. on the record. Yeah. We had Roy Bitten and Max Weinberg played on the record, uh-huh. so it's kind of like yeah. almost East Street Band <laughs> yeah. now. And we rehearsed for, you know, like 10 days or something like that. You know, we worked out the arrangements and rehearsed so we could go in the studio and bang it out. And the day before we're supposed to come in to the studio, Meatloaf comes to me and says, I don't think my label understands me. I want off my label. Yeah. And I'm not his manager. I can't tell him what to do. I said, well, if you, you can do that. But, you know, we just rehearsed for two weeks. We already run up yeah. considerable bill on this record already. Yeah. yeah. And now you want to fire your label. Yeah. So I wound up underwriting the record. Uh-huh. I, mean, I went to Bearsville and said, if you let me use the studio and if you, you know, pay for the expenses of making this record then you get right of first refusal on the record so but we, this means you you had money in the record so you were on the back end as well essentially if yeah. they didn't want to take the record yeah i essentially all of that is my bill to them right they have to collect all that money right. from my future right residuals of something or other but or they won't give me something. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, we finished the record. 
And Bearsville doesn't want the record. And uh, neither does Warner Brothers, the distributor of Bearsville. They decide they don't want the so record. So you got no label, you got no distributor. Yeah, they don't get it. Yeah. Don't get the record. Yeah. They shop it everywhere. It takes them like six months. They can't find anyone to put the record out. Really? Yes. So finally, they find this guy, Steve Popovich, with a little subsidiary of, I think, was Epic Records or something yeah. like that. Cleveland International. Yeah. He had one other artist. Yeah. And uh, Ian Hunter, the artist. Yeah. And uh, for some reason, he thought he could make something of the record. And I think, like, three things happened at the time that really turned it into what we now remember it being, but it could have been just Nothing. on the ash heap of his right. history. Yeah. Three things happened. Yeah. One was Stephen Popovich never gave up on the record. He put out a single, nothing happened. Hell, I'm putting out another single. Yeah. He put out three singles before anything ever happened with the record. So he never gave up on the record. Yeah. Second thing that happened was during that whole period, Meatloaf was touring incessantly. Just never came off the road. He played anywhere anybody would have him. Yeah. You know, and people and word of mouth started to happen about we didn't have social media then, right. but some sort of word of mouth started happening about this big fat guy who's running around the stage and he's got this little sexy girl on his leg and that sort of thing. You know, people say, Oh, you gotta see this. Yeah. So that started to happen. Then the third thing that happened, and maybe the most significant thing, was MTV came on the air. Right. And that Paradise by the Dashboard Light was the longest video that they had. Yeah. And just like any other DJ, this is yeah. where you go get yeah. high. Yeah, yeah. You put on Dark get, Side of the Moon and you go up to, to the roof. Smoke a bone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come back later, you know. <laughs> makes so sure. this was the equivalent, you know. <laughs> right. Seven minutes of, I don't have to do nothing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I think, you know, kind of pushed it all over the top. And then they re-released the other singles and they all became hits and... That was a big payday for you, too. Ultimately, it was the biggest payday I ever had. Because really? Because I hadn't gotten anything. And here's where Albert Grossman came in a little handy. Yeah. Uh, he went with me to their uh, management office or their, you know, whoever, the lawyer, whoever it was who was dealing with their business. Yeah. And, yeah, the record had been selling, and I had never been recouped or compensated. For uh -huh. So we went to negotiate the terms of that. Yeah. And he negotiated for me more points than both Steinman and Meatloaf got combined. Okay. And the Did check. You, you the, bring a bat with him? And the check that I got was just under, well, by about 30% a million dollars. Yeah. And that's, that day, I remember the first, when I looking at this check yeah. and counting the digits in it and saying, yeah. seriously, six <laughs> digits? Yeah, now I had the opportunity to do really stupid things with money. Right. And that's what, that's you what did. I bought a video studio <laughs> after that. <laughs> but well, you, you're a creative guy. You needed equipment. You need a lot of, you know. So how when you say that it would explain your output, how 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 does that explain your output? The production opportunities because uh, most artists when they make a record, right, or make anything that they make, whatever it is, that's intrinsically linked with their economic well being. Mm -hmm. in a sense in other words if you don't put out the hit you don't get the money you don't get the money you don't get the power you don't get the woman you know it's right. like it's uh 
it's all they have in a way. Yeah. I'm making money off other other people's records. Why do I have to think that way when I make my own records? Yeah. So I'm just out there like musical explorer. Music is like other planets to me. You know? So that was so you yeah. were able to detach from the pressure of making hits. Exactly. And, or or even honoring the system. In a sense. Yeah, you have to deal with the physical limitations of the, you know, the disc, you know. Right, but that's I mean, your that's your limiting factor. But, but when you I put, put out, out a Wizard of True Star, that was exactly my philosophy. I got I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes, I can put anything on there I want. And with, were you challenging yourself or did you think it was a joke? No, it was definitely not a joke. You were like, now I can really cut loose. No, it was like, you know, there's all this stuff. I figured out the formula to write a pop song. In something, anything. And I realized at that point, it's a formula. Yeah. I could do this over and over again. I could I, I could continually refer to that high school relationship that inspired all the earlier lyrics, even though I'm well beyond that now. <laughs> You're in you trouble know, now, right? <laughs> well, no, there's other things to think about. Right. You know, besides yeah. getting laid. Right. You know, it's not a bad thing to think about, but there are other things to think about, and I realized that never bothered to try and make anything musical or turn it into sound or anything right. like that. All right. those things that are floating in there. Yeah. And I essentially said, okay, I'm, I think I understand the songwriting formula. Now I'm going to destroy it. <laughs> right. I am not going to abide by that songwriting formula. Drugs involved? If I do, if I do it's because I'm paying tribute to it. In Which an you arch, did. Arch sort of way. You did when some did, covers in a way. Yeah, when I did the sort of R&B yeah. trilogy. This is like, this is also in my head. This is my influences, stuff like that. This is my aspirations in some way. Geez, I'd like to be able to sing this stuff well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you but know? you also wanted to, to deconstruct it entirely. In what a sense. You know, the that's expectations. Why be, that's why I became medleys, and after you take it more, more and more seriously as you're going through the thing, it gets sillier and sillier. It's like, but that, <laughs> but that record's almost like it, 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 it's... It's completely progressive in some points where you're almost doing something that, that doesn't make inherent sense in a pop music sense, in mind. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, I don't know what if you the comparison would offend you, but it's almost like a, a, like a Zappa record in your own style in some ways. That I'm certainly not offended to be, comp uh, to be conflated with Frank Zappa. <laughs> but do you yeah. see that conflation? Well, Frank Zappa was also, you know, a destroyer. In, in a way, too. Yeah, in a way, it's kind of it was almost my version of Absolutely Free. Right. Yeah. Which was one of my favorite records and a real revelation for me. You know, where you just th are throwing musical fragments out; they don't turn into he whole songs. Yeah. Some of them are just little transitional elements to another thing. Yeah. You know that he did probably more coherently than I did. You know, in other words, he has an overarching message of sarcasm i he, guess you would call it yeah yeah no definitely he was uh you know cutting but he had some humor there was it like you know on on wizard of true well, star that's the thing. well i had some humor that's the other thing about frank zappa it's yeah. like he doesn't mind being silly right and you, you did a little of that when you're playing with the sounds and oh yeah <laughs> i mean i love being silly it's part of your you know when you were a kid yeah. you know really young mm-hmm and kind of the first time you hear music or you start experiencing music and the, just 
nearly spastic response you have to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's sometimes, you know, you'd like to be able to get back to, you know, to some sort of nursery rhyme level. Yeah, yeah. Just silly things that rhyme. Yeah. You know, but the kind of things that, you know, a naive mind can find enjoyment in. Yeah, and, and, and you can do that with music too. So you blew it all apart with that record, but then you sort of reconverge a bit. And you, well, uh, then you, things sort of split, you know, yeah. that was, uh, after that record, then we sort of officially founded the, the utopian concept. Yeah. So I had a band that I played with yeah. and then I continued to make solo records, although most of the touring through that era was with the band. Was there a manifesto to the utopian concept? Yeah, it was kind of this, you know, aggressive, you know, collaborative, uh, aggressive, musical exploration again you know yeah. there were a lot of for us as players you know mm-hmm. when you start to think of yourself as a player you know you play enough to get kind of good at what you're doing there are these um gravitational influences that yeah that come by you yeah. know one of them was mahavishnu orchestra that blew your mind it blew everybody's mind you know yeah not just my mind but we were collectively blown yeah and uh and what those things do usually is open you to possibilities you didn't think of yeah playing in modes that you didn't think of before um creating melodies that don't have the typical cadences that you're used to and that sort of thing creating textures that are hard to pin down in terms of their tonality but add to the right it's like when Joe Zavinall puts the ring modulator on the piano. How the hell do you put that in standard notation? Right. There's so many weird harmonic <laughs> things coming out. So it was jazz, essentially. More or less, that's what we call it. It was like, they call it... Fusion. They would call it jazz fusion right. or fusion rock, but right. it was all about, you know, having those jazz chops. After all, John McLaughlin was a famous jazz musician. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys that he played with had some reputation before, but weren't as well known. Right. Well, I, I just watched, uh, I had uh, Flea and Robert Trujillo in here. He had produced a documentary on Jocko, which I just saw. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, I don't like, I, I never registered Fusion. Like, I like Bebop, but Fusion just never resonated with me. So I had to go back within, you know, in the last month and, and try to wrap my brain around Weather Report and stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, you know, whenever you hear like a an apothem like fusion right it always conjures up assumptions about what you're about to hear you know yeah. but these are very vague reference points right. you know it's that's the reason why there isn't a word or yeah. a genre that describes what i'm trying to do right. although people will struggle to find one what do they usually label you as alt rock maybe yeah but the point is you know Rock is a thing you apply to anything that has bass and drums nowadays. Yeah. Do you have a problem with <laughs> what's going on musically now? Are there people... You must be able to find whatever you want. But, I mean, in terms of pop music, do you feel like uh something... you mean, Do I listen to the radio? Yeah. <laughs> well, you... I haven't for a long time. Well, no one has a radio anymore. You no, just but the point is... Around. It's kind of, you know, it's very weird. Things are... It's pretty dynamic nowadays, but a lot of it is because of social media and the fact that memes travel way faster than they used to. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be literally word of mouth. 
Well, before we get to that, so Utopia was this thing that you created to explore music without any boundaries. And, exactly, and, and personally, it was an opportunity for me to be more principally a guitar player than a singer-songwriter frontman. So that's going on, you know, that's your vacation almost. That's your your No, it was, my, it was my vocation. We were playing arenas at that point, and we had huge productions with lasers and smoke and stuff Costumes. like that. That's where I met this guy back Your new there, manager. You know? Right. <laughs> and but you were still doing the solo records, so like did yeah. did, did um, yeah. But during the course of that, you know, all this bombast, I'll do an album like a Hermit of Mikalo, and then you like get that. a hit out of that, accidentally, oh, right? But I mean, I was, didn't write a hit, you know, it just became a hit. But that's a, that was a big big song. No, it's a familiar song. It was not a big, you know. Can we still be friends? Is a I know. Big song. Why, where did it top off? I don't know. I don't have that information. <laughs> yeah, I can. I could probably find it. Where did it top off? I, uh, if it made the top forty, I think that. Maybe U.S. Billboard thirty six. Yeah. Okay. That's what I mean. It's like I have things that are that people think are hits, but they're actually just fan favorites. Well, I know the song. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? It's like a, a Beatles song or any other song. Yeah, but like... also you may know it because two other artists recorded it. Rod Stewart and Robert Palmer both recorded that song. No, it wasn't Rod Stewart's version. I remember your version. I know, Robert but I mean Palmer. that's the reason why people, why more people remember a song that only got to thirty six. I like the song, Todd. I know. <laughs> I don't dislike the song. You know. You're just saying you didn't do it on purpose. No. And Utopia saying, was more important. And I'm, no. no. Well, all I'm saying is it was not a hit in right. the usual sense. But do you, you think know? that most of you know the people, because you are a, a guy that has a, a specific following, a specific audience that stayed with you for many years. Yeah. Um, and, and you have these two lives in, in there, there's something about some of the hits which can be classified as pop rock or, or, or uh, you know, soft rock and utopia is fucking you know you're a spaceman you're an astronaut where do you think you garnered most of what you're known for in terms of an audience i would say that the larger audiences yes utopia utopia sure right because it's the live experience partly that the big show but we just you know we we got into a certain sweet spot there Mm -hmm. you know where the big production and stuff like that how many people on stage usually how many how many people in the Only band four. Oh, really no we always were, well no originally we were six wait a minute two keyboards drums it's like bass, a parliament me, show uh and a synthesizer player yeah it's like, it's <laughs> so, it's like parliament yeah so it's yeah. usually six people on stage yeah and we would carry out big heavy sets and set them up every night you know we designed you know the stage in a certain way and had you know people doing our lights you know it was very important the production and people in those days i think appreciated that idea now everyone's numb to it you right. know production is so intense right at this point right that most people are numb and that's a bad thing numb numb's not good well you know it's <laughs> don't get me started <laughs> yeah, why <laughs> well i'm just saying don't you know sometimes yeah you gotta get comfortably numb sure because at least for me i try to be optimistic you know and whatever i write you know is not you know, I don't write death metal, <laughs> that sort right. of thing. I like to challenge, you know, conventional ideas. But it's founded in a, cer- a certain sort of basic belief that there is a better nature somewhere. 
yeah. in people. Yeah. Yet we're going through times which makes you really almost ashamed to be a human being. Mm-hmm. And that's the hard part, you know, is to continue to search for that, you know, like... Utopia. How do, well, how do we justify ourselves? Right. You know... And you think through art, is there's a purity to music that, that enables that ability to transcend? No. Music, you know, talking about music as if it's all the same is still the problem. Okay. You know? Yeah. It's like, there is music yeah. that, you know, neo-Nazis like to listen to. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they, there might be a few neo-Nazis that love Can We Still Be Friends? Yeah. Even that, you know, in their more tender moments. But, you know, when they're breaking down on the stand before... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but otherwise, you know, it's it's a cha- I to me it's a challenge, you know, to I've stay all- in that groove of hope. Yeah, to not just go out and write a record and say you you feckless motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just so tired of looking for what's good in you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. if you don't freaking care, yeah, you know, you're just angry. Oh God. Give me a break. Yeah. Everybody's got an excuse to be angry, you know? Was that one of the reasons that, you know, like, because it seems to me that in, in most of your performances and in a lot of the music, there, there for me even, there's a vulnerability there that's, that's there, a sensitivity that's almost painful. And, and it's part of what, it, I'm not saying that in a negative way, but I mean, like, it seems like some of your stagecraft is around vulnerability. Do you feel that? I'm not satisfied unless I feel like it's coming from a certain place, which is what makes it so hard to sing certain songs over and over and over and over again. Because you get they, you get numb. Because yeah, you get numb to it, and the only way you can get through it is like n- don't torture yourself through the song. You know, yeah. just do the freaking song. You know, right. Uh, yeah, there is something to be said for numbness and just focusing, you know? Yeah. Go numb, but don't lose focus. You have to be going somewhere, you know? Right. And it, it, now, to talk about memes as as being somewhat, uh, you know, destructive and part of the problem, that you know, the song Bang the Drum All Day has got to be, is has to be considered a meme at this point. Yeah, and it used to be an extremely <laughs> lucrative meme. <laughs> Until Carnival Cruise Line started sinking all those ships. (laughs) (laughs) They just, oh, that's right. That was their theme song. Yeah, and now they had to change their image to, I don't know what. But I feel feel like it's like one of those songs that they have, they always run on the radio or they play baseball games almost. It's like almost like an anthem of some kind. Green Bay Packers. Oh, do they? Touchdown song. Yeah. And it was for the Rams for a while. I don't know if it still is, you know. So that was... Yeah, for the amount of times that people hear it, you'd think I'd be a rich man. But uh no. (laughs) Now, the irony of it it is, and the reason why I don't really care that much... Yeah. I was making an album at the time. Which one? uh, I think it was uh, Ever Popular Tortured Artist Effect. Is the album that that that's on, yeah. And, you know, I was... Not happy with my label, that's hence the title, you mm-hmm. know, which is that constantly hector you with expectations, yeah, and don't see kind of what's what you've buried in there that they could kind of go and run with, yeah, you know, they want their job to be really easy, mm-hmm. so I was, you know, at that particular point, a little cynical about the whole process, and I just look at the album as a deliverable. 
But, you know, I came up with a few songs you got to write. You know, I still got to write. So I came up with a few songs. And when I get into that mode, especially when I'm in my ideal environment, which is alone, and sometimes I don't see people for days. In Kauai? Uh, well, nowadays. But that album was recorded in Minkalo. <laughs> Where's Minkalo? It's... Uh, Upstate New York. It's yeah. a little beyond Bearsville. Yeah, it was at the very end of a of a little. So you're up there road. and you're like, I got a service. No, okay. I am not. In that moment, I'm saying no. I don't give a crap at right. all. You know, I'm right? Just, I'm just making a deliverable here. Right. Well, collect my money. That's <laughs> all mm. I got. And give me a deliverable. Not try not to think about it too much. Yeah. But what happens is when I get into the mode of writing, sometimes I write subconsciously. In fact, most of my writing is subconscious, and it will permeate every aspect of my life as long as I'm not disturbed by something. And so I will start to write songs in my sleep. Uh huh. And I don't actually write them. They just come, like, completely written. And you wake up with them and go do and it. And then I wake up and I have to remember them long enough to go do that. Really? So, and that's something Bang the Drum was just something that I dreamed. <laughs> really? Literally, exactly the way you hear the chorus, that's exactly what I dreamed. I didn't have verses yet. I knew I had to build verses around it. Right. But that chorus just came to me fully realized. And that happens a lot in your life? No, only when I'm... When I have the luxury to be right. fully immersed in the process, and that, but that, and that happened. means not being disturbed by other people. In other words, for me, see, a lot of people they thrive on interaction with yeah. other people, and they right. get a lot of inspiration from, you know, things that get input maybe during the course of the process, because they go into most people kind of go into the studio. They don't have a whole, you know, like. 12, 15 songs, all done, ready to go. Let's just bang them out. It's, yeah. not, it's not Frank Sinatra anymore, you know? Right. It's, you know, you go in the studio, it's something of a dragging things out process. Well, if you get into that mode where there isn't, you know, which is opposite of the yeah. collaboration in a right. way, where it's just internalization, constant, incessant internalization, the only time you've actually, you know, that noise level comes down and you've suddenly realized, oh, that's what I'm thinking. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have all these other little details that are like right. like gnats flying around you yeah, all yeah. the time. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people can you know somehow get to that space without having the solitude. But when I have the solitude, that's kind of what happens. It becomes all about just making the music all the time, and the song will come to me in my sleep, and then I'll go and try and jot it down. I had a song come to me in my sleep when I was like in Kathmandu, and I had to, like, visualize a piano in my head and teach myself how to play it because I was nowhere near any way to record it. And I uh -huh. had to do that line night after night until I got home, like, two months later. Did you record it on your oh, phone yeah. or anything? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, it became a song. Which song? That was Lost Horizon. Uh-huh. And then there was a song called uh, The Waiting Game, was the most incredibly complex song that I ever dreamed, and I can't figure out how i ever managed to capture what album is that of it that's on uh nearly human and that was like you you, you blew your own mind <laughs> I, I was in the studio yeah i dreamt i was in the studio yeah producing manhattan transfer and that was the song they were singing was coming out of the speakers did you actually produce a Manhattan Transfer? No, I think at one point they, I was approached to do that. So you're they, dreaming they, you're producing the but, Manhattan Transfer. Yeah, but they covered uh, one or two of my songs, too. 
And you did almost like you uh, you did a, a vocal album like that. You almost did acapella. Like, yeah, yeah. Then so you've you've tried a lot of things. <laughs> Few. Yeah. <laughs> so well, you, said, okay. So at you, one point, I thought I wanted to do an album with a marching band. <laughs> you why know, didn't you do whole, it? Well, Tusk came out, and they kind of <laughs> they fucked it. Up. Yeah, took the <laughs> took, took the, the bloom off the rose in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, am I wrong in this memory? I think one of the first times I ever remember listening to you was I had a 45 of like a cover of Good Vibrations. Is that possible? That is possible. Like it was like perfectly reproduced. Yeah, I did an album called Faithful. Uh Uh-huh. And it was done in what was essentially the 10th year after I had like left high school and became a professional musician and one side of it was a tribute to everything you would have heard in like 1966 right what was coming out of the radio what was in the boutiques you yeah know, yeah the yeah music store and all yeah. that other stuff so i picked out i think a half a dozen songs that represented that right and made my own radio show <laughs> i did them as literally as i could more or less as an homage yeah as an homage but also it was like as if you were listening to the radio in 1966 wow what you might have heard when... that was the idea yeah and you did it and then i did another side of original songs yeah so that i, I remember having that 45 so now like are you exhausted are, is your is your cynicism you know invading because I know you keep you I mean you put out a record every year almost mentally I'm not exhausted no yeah being on the road is exhausting do you have to do it sorry we can pretend like your manager's not here no he's already he's heard all this already <laughs> <laughs> um I mean being on the road works for me in a certain way you like it but the problem is I have two gigs now at least for the last four years yeah which is whatever i do as you know as todd rundgren and whatever i do with ringo and the all-stars yeah which is at least two or three months a year and some years has been more than that how's he doing he's doing great as far as i know i haven't seen him yet this week (laughs) and what happened with the uh the cars thing ah that was a that was sad um there were possibilities there, I think. You, you know, were approached by a couple of the guys? I was approached by Elliot, whom I knew. Yeah. So they approached me. I guess they approached a couple of people, but they thought it might work. We did a little bit of a run-through in a studio here in L.A., and we thought, okay, let's give this a try. We'll incorporate <laughs> some new cars. Rick would not let us use the cars as yeah. a name. So that hobbled things a little bit because uh-huh. people are thinking, is this... The old cars are just a different, you know. Was he mad, Okasic? Was he mad? Yeah. Jealous? Jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. Stephen Colbert made a whole freaking riff about it. Yeah. Something to do. Something to do with me being in the new cars and Rick Okasic, you know, like trying to assassinate me or something. I don't remember what it was, but right. it was pretty hysterical for a while to hear your name just pulled out of the blue. But you guys toured? No, we never. You didn't hear this? <laughs> I don't I don't pay that much attention. We like, you know, we were so heavily invested in this. You know, yeah. we financed the whole thing on a giant merchandising advance. We're about two, two and a half weeks on the road, and I wasn't there at the time. Mm-hmm. 
because I was hanging out with my son in Cleveland and was going to fly to the next gig. But the bus is pulling into Washington. Somebody, some jerk off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't know. It doesn't think a bus is a big deal and pulls in front of the bus without signaling. The bus driver slams on the brake. Elliot has just woken up to go to the John. Yeah, he gets thrown against the bulkhead. Yeah, breaks his collarbone. Oh, yeah. He soldiers on for like another three gigs. But if you look at his, you know, over here, the bone is starting to. Oh my God! Poke up. Uh-huh. See, fortunately, he's left-handed, so the strap was on the other side. But eventually, the doctor says, "This is crazy. You have to have surgery." Yeah, yeah. And that was just the end of the and recuperation and stuff. So, essentially, two and a half weeks into what was supposed to be like three months of oh, touring, so went no. See, all right well, now, and lost all of our investment and uh, everything in it. Sorry, buddy. Is Man, that well, that's ancient history? Is that is that late, Ari? Yeah. Oh, good. And like uh, the one thing I didn't cover. Like Greg plays with me all the time, and I see Elliot whenever I see Elliot. You know, we have a good yeah, time good. together. Oh, there's good. no, there's nothing. I mean, between the guys in the band, there was never any sort of, you know. Right, right. It's just, uh, it's just bad luck. Yeah, bad luck. So yeah. I didn't ask you about the like, you know, I listened to uh, when I found out you produced that New York Dolls first record. I listened to that a lot too. Mm-hmm. I tried to, I really try to identify because I've talked to a couple of producers, and it seems like that. You actually, when you do produce, you, you like some guys are like, you know, I'm just going to get out of the way. But it seems like, you know, you actually make things clearer. My philosophy is you do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. It isn't like doing a certain thing. Right. Because every band's or every act, you know, mm-hmm. it's not always a band, but they always come to the studio with strengths and weaknesses and things you can count on and things that maybe, you know, you're not sure you can count on right like for instance the songwriting yeah at a certain point well up to a certain point i thought well if the band comes in the studio and they don't actually have the songwriting all together i will ghostwrite for them yeah and they don't mind that usually well i want to get the record done and get to get paid and get, you know but and I, if they don't have any other ideas yeah you kind of have to do but that. do do a lot of them go like oh shit you made it better most of the time or is it most of the time like no oh, christ rungren wants to well no if they have if they have something i'd always rather use what yeah. they have but they have nothing you right. know <laughs> that's the problem you got a song you got all these great chords no lyrics right you know, somebody's got to write some lyrics eventually <laughs> to this song, you know. Yeah. And if you don't come up with some, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're going to get this done. So, <laughs> so you know, I mean, the example would be like Remote Control, the album that I did, first album I did with the Tubes. Yeah. Lots and lots of great musical ideas, but no kind of overarching concept, uh-huh. you know. So I kind of had to invent a lot of that mm-hmm. for them. And nobody's particularly bothered about that, you know. I sure. think for them being still at the time essentially a theatrical act. Yeah. You know, they're looking for music to turn into a show. Right. And so there's not a whole lot of problem, especially if I'm ghostwriting because I'm not taking any right. <laughs> freaking royalties. Well, what about someone like yeah. XTC when you produce them? And they're pretty, you know, together outfit. Um, together in the sense that, yeah, there's a lot of music to work with. Yeah. There. Yeah. I kind of got lucky because I caught them at a, a point of vulnerability. Uh-huh. Because they'd already, when I say they, we mean Andy. Yeah. Let's face it. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
it's a band, but essentially Andy was the one who called the shots most of the time. Yeah. Probably the guy that said to Colin, hey, let's make a band. Right. And um, I was contacted by their label, by the A&R man at the label, and yeah. he said, well, you know, their records have been selling less and less. Right. And costing more and more, you know. And I knew about the band. I was a big fan of the band, and I knew about their history. You know, yeah. why don't they ever perform? Well, it's because Andy has debilitating agoraphobia or something like that. You yeah. know, you can't get stage fright, can't play. Um, and also that, you know, he was notorious for driving his own producers out of the studio. <laughs> With his constant sort of anal demands, yeah, yeah, things yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. So, right. I mean, eventually you got another project you got to do. Yeah, you, know, you can't mix <laughs> yeah. this album for another year. Right. So, I knew about the situation. I had been listening to their music anyway, even before they even approached me. You're a fan. I was a fan, yeah. but I also knew what was wrong with the records. Yeah, because I was listening to them. Right. And essentially, what was wrong is that Andy had too much of a free hand. Mm -hmm. And the reason why Andy had too much of a free hand or why so much time was being invested in these remixes and stuff is because they never played live. Yeah. Once the album was over, the fun was done. You go home, you sit around until you come up with another album. Right. Unlike most musicians. You go you know, tour the record. Who will go out and play the record yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So. So they didn't mind if it took forever, or at least he didn't mind if it took forever to make a record. Yeah. So, you know, I knew from listening to the records, they were getting more and more anal. They were, the sound of them yeah. was getting, in a subjective sense, worse. Right. But for reasons that wouldn't be obvious to most people. There's a thing called psychoacoustics. Mm-hmm which has nothing to do with the actual music that's happening, yeah. but with the kind of stress that sound puts on you. Yeah. So, for instance, if you mix the vocals at just that level, you can just kind of hear them. Psychoacoustically, you are squinting through the record. <laughs> right, Where, why can't I hear that guy? Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking, I'm, I'm, I yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's right. like, you know and, and plus, you know, he's like, the process usually is you go in the studio, spend a day mixing a song, you take it home, and then you listen to it more. Yeah. You know, at least that's, you know, essentially like Andy's process, looking, listening to it to see whether there's something else you can do to it. Right. So he comes back the next day, he's got an idea for something else to do to it. And usually what that is is to take out more air, you know. Right. To fill in some space with more sound, yeah. you know. I don't think the hi-hat is like high enough. <laughs> Let's make that even higher, you know? So he's anal and, and he's... Yeah, and the bass yeah. is not, like, low enough. So you wind up with, like, you know, if you were look, looking at it at a, on a spectrometer or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. spectrum analyzer, <laughs> right. it would be completely flat, right. you know? <laughs> across there, you know? Because, yeah. like, every freaking space is filled in <laughs> right. with sound. And you don't realize how hard it is to listen to that. Yeah. You know, because you're constantly straining to straining, pick, thing, yeah. pick things out of it, yeah. you know? And so they had completely lost track of that as well. And fortunately, as I say, I caught them at a vulnerable point. They didn't know exactly what to do. They had gotten an ultimatum from the label. Which Chang record was it? Skylarking. 
Okay, so they had done like what three records? Oh no, more than that. Oh yeah. So they were vulnerable. They they were in trouble. They were they were a little bit in trouble and vulnerable. And they just said they just sent me their song demos. And uh, I listened to the songs, and this whole idea of a song cycle came to me. You know that you could do make it all a piece, like it's from dawn till dusk. Yeah, it could be uh, a day. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a week, or it could be a year. It could be a lifetime. Yeah, you know, traveling through all these phases, but it's coming from one place and going to another place. Yeah. And so I essentially took a reel of tape, and I've done it. I did it before with an album with the tubes, where we kind of mapped everything out beforehand, mapped out all the tempos, came up with the running order before we ever recorded anything. Yeah. The only thing question was refining tempos, you know, and then doing some overdubs, laying some stuff. We went to San Francisco, laid on all the drums and orchestras yeah. and things like that. Right. Came back, did a few more vocals in Woodstock. But essentially, it was kind of preordained by me. You yeah, know? right. The order. What the and, record yeah. was going to be right. like. Which is something that they never had endured before. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, we're, and so they trusted you. I think... Uh, the, 60% of the band trusted me. Mm-hmm. And then Andy never trusted me. Did, did he, was he happy with the record? Initially, no. Mm. He went back to England immediately after we finished the record and did every, took every press opportunity to say it was the worst record they ever made. Mm-hmm. He hated me at that point, and he was willing to sabotage his own career <laughs> through his vitriol yeah. you know, over me and the fact that I did not give up what I said I was going to do at the beginning of the record. I said, I'm going to be here at the end of the record. You may have driven these other producers off. I'm going to be here when this record is done. <laughs> All right? Yeah. And lo and behold, we got through three mixes. Yeah. We got back to my studio, three mixes, and they went home. Yeah. They went back to England. Yeah. Said they were homesick. Said there was something wrong with the well water. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> to explain whatever, you know. But in any case, I finished mixing the album myself without Andy, yeah, you know, without anyone looking over my shoulder, mm-hmm. and delivered the record. And then what happened was, and it was perfect at that point. Yeah, it was a perfect record. You know, took it to Greg Calby, one of the world's premier masterers mm-hmm. at Sterling Sound in mm-hmm. New York, and we got the best master we could possibly get out of it. We delivered it. I hear a couple weeks later, okay, we're going to change the running order on the record. We're taking Dear God off the record. Yeah. We're going to take the hit record off the record. Right. That's Andy? That's Andy and his A&R man. Andy because he was afraid that, you know, he would, like, there would be repercussions personally for him for taking on such a thorny subject. What a pussy. Yeah. And then the A&R man, who didn't like it because there was a child singing on it. And he hated children singing on the records. So you had to fight that fight? No. I Well, I did. It, see, I never do that. Yeah. I deliver the record, so I'm here to make the product. You have to market the product. Yeah. You figure that out. Right. But I did call him and said, this is a mistake. You know, to take this off, to put on this other crappy song that Andy made us record. Yeah. Called Another Satellite had nothing to do with the record at all. Mm-hmm. He made us essentially re-record his demo note for note. 
just to mollify him, we did it. You yeah, know? right. But the point is, it had nothing to do with the record. Right. It was not in the running order. Yeah. So he decided to take Dear God off so he could stick that stupid song on there. Yeah. <laughs> Next thing you know, they put Dear God on the B-side of Grass, what's supposed to be the first single. Yeah. Everybody flips the record. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Dear God becomes like a giant phenomenon, saves their career. They have to go and remaster the record again to put Dear God back on it. Your mix. Of course. Yeah. You know. yeah. Well, there were no other mixes. There right. were only changes in running order. Did he thank you? No, he did not. What he did was, he's such a... Yeah, okay. Such a brat. Yeah. That even at his age, he's such a brat. Yeah. That he's decided that his campaign is... The original record was not mastered properly. Mm -hmm. That there was something out of phase in the original record, and these new vinyl releases that they've just come out with have fixed that. Which is, you know, which is essentially him trying to impugn me, but not just me, Greg Calby, one of the world's somebody who's mastered like every record you've ever heard of. Did they make a mess of it? I mean, the new they re-released. Well, it? if there was some, I think there's just, I think it's just, just total, oh, total bullshit. They did nothing. Complete bullshit. Yeah. But if such a thing existed, it's because they changed the running order of the record and had to remaster it, <laughs> <laughs> which I had nothing to do with. That's fucking ridiculous. What a prick! All right. Did you do? And uh, nothing's happened in the thirty years since since what? Since skylarking. <laughs> it's been that long. Yes. Oh my god. But you keep uh, you keep working. There's a you have a what when was the last full record you put out? Uh it's called Global. It's like sort of like I listened to some of that. So I uh synthesizer's almost dance music, right? Uh it's a, there's a bit of EDM, but it isn't as EDM as the one before. State. Yeah. And how do those do for you? Um we had great shows. Yeah. But you know, we're independently distributed now. Uh-huh. So it's really not like the good old days but right. then that's that's a new reality yeah. you know selling recorded music people used to think that was what you know what music is what the goal is yeah from an artist standpoint under that old commoditized model mm -hmm. you know you're selling a thing mm -hmm. you know yeah. an object you can right. hold i'm buying records yeah you're yeah but you know the artist and whoever recorded right. that record depending on the deal he got could be making like five cents library you know <laughs> so, you know he could be making god knows maybe whatever. you should run do you get any of that i don't even know what the terms of that are but it's i would not, guarantee that you happen? that that original well you know under the old commoditized model there yeah. are all these so-called material expenses mm-hmm the actual manufacturing of the product and the carting the product to the retailers yeah. where it gets sold and stuff like that. And that was considered to be considerably significant aspect of the process. Plus the label figures, you know, our expertise in terms of promotion, the fact that we're a bank for you. Yeah. You know, we loan you money to make these projects right. and things like that. That justifies a major participation by us. Right. You know, we should be able to take a lot of money back. But when they well, reissue a record like Run, like wh whoever bought the rights to that material, because it's it's not the label anymore. When no, it isn't. But I'm trying to make the distinction between a commodity yeah. and a service. Sure. Okay. And what we have now is, you know, 
and what I've always believed was the proper model is more of a service model. Music is a service. You pay Rhapsody $10 a month, you listen to anything you want. Mm-hmm. The idea of ownership of music is never was real. You know, you owned a piece of plastic, but until you put it on the table, yeah. that didn't have the value that the artist intended, right. which was for you to hear it. Yeah. So people with giant racks and racks of vinyl doesn't mean crap. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Anyway, okay, you got the thing, but you're not hearing the music, you <laughs> yeah. know. Got a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> we all got things. Yeah. But, so, you know, from that standpoint, I'm perfectly happy with the service model. Mm-hmm. But we're still in this phase where, you know, figuring out how to compensate people for the service model. It's much easier to keep track of a thing right. than it is bits flying right. through the air. And it's, it's, it's easier to, to pirate bits. But also, you know, we're reevaluating where the value is. Right. You know, and a lot of it's in the live performing again, right? As I say, the greatest value is in the live performance. Yeah. You know, yeah. whatever small percentage, 12%, if you're lucky, if it's Michael Jackson, 20% maybe of the recorded mm-hmm. song, you get 80% of the ticket price. Right. And it costs at least twice as much for a concert ticket. Yeah. So that's where your payoff always was. Right. The music is promotion, and a lot of bands have started to realize that. And T-shirts. T-shirts are big. T-shirts, and if you want to sell CDs, at your merch table. Yeah. How many CDs do you think Jimmy Buffett sells not at his merch table? None. (laughs) 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 Exactly. So, you know, I mean, bands like Radiohead, they realize this, you know? Yeah. Pay whatever you want for the record. Download the music and pay whatever you want, but they realize that that's going to encourage them to buy concert tickets. Right. And other merch and stuff like that. The that's music where it's was at. the music recorded music was always promotion for the right. live performance. Right. Now, okay, in closing, you re- you you produced uh, Grand Funks, it's America uh, we're an American band, did uh-huh. you? Yes, I did. Was was the cowbell your idea? Likely. <laughs> <laughs> More cowbell. (laughs) (laughs) More cowbell. Thanks for talking, Todd. My pleasure. Wow, right? Good stories, man. He's he's a little prickly, but I enjoy talking to him, that Todd Rundgren. It's always nice to have to sit as audience with a genius. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Get on the mailing list. Check my schedule. I'm going to be in uh, Mission Creek Festival in, uh, at the Ingord Theater in Iowa City on April 8th, the Rococo Theater in Lincoln, Nebraska, April 9th, and Harvest Bank Theater at the Midland in Kansas City, Missouri on April 10th. Uh, the last I heard, that one's a little weak, a little slow, so come on out. And it doesn't matter to me if it's just me and you know, 50, 60 a year in a place that seats however many thousand. It's, it'll be interesting. It'll be a little uh, intimate, and 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 it'll be hard to transcend the uh, the weird sadness and absence of others. But uh, it's uh, it will it will be an experience that none of us will forget.
lives.